Hello, my name is Lucia Novak. I am a nurse practitioner, board certified in both adult health and advanced diabetes management. I am located at Capital Diabetes and Endocrine Associates in Silver Spring, Maryland. Today, I'm here to discuss the 2020 edition of the ADA Standards of Medical Care in Diabetes, which were published in print in Diabetes Care January 2020, but made available online ahead of print at diabetes.org in December 2019. So the ADA published its first guidelines back in 1989, and at that time, it was all of four pages long. The current 2020 version is over 200 pages, and the abridged edition, which was created to make this very hefty document more accessible to primary care providers, stands at 29 pages and is still not what I would consider a light read. There are currently 15 sections. Each is devoted to a specific concern or population, and they encompass the lifespan of a person living with diabetes, its complications and comorbidities, such as overweight, obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. There has been particular and increasing attention paid to individuals with diabetes who also have established or are at high risk of developing cardiovascular, peripheral vascular, and or renal disease. So my task today to discuss the key updates, but in order for the listeners, you out there, to appreciate what is new, I feel I must at least give a brief summary of how we got here, but I will not go back to 1989. The standards were most significantly changed in 2018. It was at that time that the clinical significance of cardiovascular disease came to the forefront of factors that impacted how clinicians intensified diabetes management. So for instance, if you were seeing a patient who was experiencing hyperglycemia despite optimization of metformin, before choosing the next medication, the clinician would need to consider whether or not that patient also had established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. If the answer to this question was yes, the treatment algorithm provided guidance as to which pharmacological class would be best suited to address not only the glycemic control, but also that which would improve cardiovascular outcomes in that particular population of patients. Additionally, if there were specific agents within that class that carried the FDA indication to reduce risk, as was proven in the cardiovascular outcomes trial conducted, those medications were listed as well. In my opinion, it was this change in 2018 that the standards really provided a roadmap that truly assisted clinicians to better navigate the numerous and complex treatment options available, especially when treating patients with underlying cardiovascular disease. While the ADA has always promoted patient-focused, patient-centered care, this became the main theme when the standards were again updated in 2019. Intensification of treatment continued to include the determination of whether or not patients with diabetes had established cardiovascular disease and or risk factors, but was expanded to also include the assessment 
for the presence or absence of chronic kidney disease as well as heart failure. This was based on the remarkable renal protective and heart failure benefit evidence that was generated by the cardiovascular outcomes trials and renal trials involving both GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors. Again, specific classes were recommended, GLP-1 receptor agonist class for the predominance of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and SGLT2 inhibitors class for the predominance of chronic kidney disease and or heart failure. And again, depending on FDA labeling, specific agents were highlighted. The cardiovascular heart failure evidence was so convincing that the ADA recommendations for the cardiovascular disease and risk management recommendations were endorsed by the American College of Cardiology. In keeping with the theme of patient-centered care, the 2019 standards also provided algorithms guiding therapy selection for patients who were not yet experiencing cardiovascular or renal complications, but when instead the primary concern for both the patient and the clinician was to minimize hypoglycemia, weight gain, and probably out-of-pocket cost as well. So that brings us to this year's standards in 2020. There have been several updates made to this year's standards to include changes in layout, how recommendations are grouped and presented, clarification of previous recommendations, the incorporation of new scientific evidence, and ensuring that the strength of the recommendations are appropriately aligned with the strength of the scientific evidence which supports them. In short, I have five areas that I would like to emphasize as key takeaways. First, patient-centered focus, not glucocentric. This year's standards place even more emphasis on a patient-centered approach to diabetes management, meaning intensify treatment based on the patient's risk factors and comorbidities regardless of what their A1C is. As I like to tell my patients, it ain't just about the sugar, sugar. Cardiovascular disease is king and chronic kidney disease is queen. More emphasis has been placed on the use of GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors as second agent of choice after metformin based on established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and or chronic kidney disease and heart failure. If the patient is already on an agent from one of these two classes or the recommended class is not appropriate for that particular patient, then either add or use an agent from the other class. Basically what that means is that most patients with type 2 diabetes and established cardiovascular disease should be on metformin plus a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor, or they should be on metformin plus a GLP-1 receptor agonist and an SGLT2 inhibitor. However, while our colleagues at the European Society of Cardiology in collaboration with members of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes are now recommending both of these classes as first line before metformin, we in the U.S. have not done so, at least not yet.
There is also more emphasis on the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, those patients without established disease. It is recommended that all patients with diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, who are between the ages of 40 to 75 years, should be prescribed and hopefully taking a moderate intensity statin. And those with established disease, regardless of age, should be prescribed a high-intensity statin. With the addition of either azidamide or a PCSK9 inhibitor for additional LDL lowering if needed, and or the addition of icosapent ethyl as indicated for persistent hypertriglyceridemia, which was defined as between 135 to 499 milligrams per deciliter. My second point is to avoid hypoglycemia. The 2020 standards, again, emphasize avoidance of hypoglycemia. It costs money, and it interferes with achieving desired glucose ranges. Clinicians should choose and use agents that will not promote hypoglycemia early in the disease and often. There is more emphasis on choosing that GLP-1 receptor agonist even before basal insulin. Thankfully, we now have an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist available, semaglutide, or the trade name ribelsis. In addition, we have expanded FDA indication on liraglutide or Victoza, which has now been approved for use in patients as young as 10 years of age. If basal insulin is needed, we as clinicians must consider cost almost over everything else and proceed accordingly. We also need to anticipate hypoglycemia when we're using insulin and prescribe glucagon to all patients who are at risk. Third, monitoring matters, and the A1C is only part of the story, and it can be a deceiving one at that. The 2020 standards expanded their recommendations for continuous glucose monitoring in the section entitled Diabetes Technology. Continuous glucose monitoring, or CGM as we like to call it, provides something referred to as time and range, which is a blood glucose no lower than 70 milligrams per deciliter during fasting and no higher than 180 milligrams per deciliter after eating. And this is a very important indicator of glycemic control as it allows for the visualization of blood glucose patterns and provides information as to when like time of day, and duration, how long, how many minutes, or even hours, as the case may be, that a patient is experiencing unsafe glucose levels. CGM provides necessary and insightful data, allowing clinicians and patients to be more closely aligned on treatment goals and therapeutic options. Whether the CGM be obtained via a professional diagnostic office-based study or through the use of personal patient-owned devices. And with all of the high-speed advances in technology, whether it be CGM, insulin pumps, apps that patients are downloading on their smartphones, et cetera, we must keep in mind that no one size fits all. Technology type and use must be tailored to the patient, their needs, their skills, their access, and their desire to use it. Fourth, the 2020 standards emphasize patient-centered, individualized, personalized care across the life spectrum to include preventing the disease. 
This leads me to comment on the importance of protecting our future, meaning preconception counseling. It must start in puberty and happen at least once a year to all women of childbearing age. Two-thirds of pregnancies in women with pre-existing diabetes are unplanned. Pregnancy should be made by choice, not by chance. And lastly, I cannot emphasize enough staying current. Because the science of diabetes and its management continues to rapidly evolve, even a yearly update has proven to be insufficient. The ADA now has the living standards available online and is updated in almost real time as new scientific evidence and FDA indications become available. I hope that my summary on the current ADA standards of medical care and diabetes was helpful to all of you out there as we all are trying to help our patients.